Just got a couple announcements as we begin. A super snack Sunday. I see. I keep messing. I keep saying snooper snack. It's a snooper snack. Excuse Super snack Sunday is. See, it's more snacks. Would totally solve that problem right there. Uh, so Super Snack Sunday is next Sunday morning. Essentially, what that is is if you're out grocery shopping this week. Uh, pick, uh, on the back communion tables, there's a little list, and we're trying to redo the kids' cupboards back there so they have some snacks and stuff. I think last week, Christy was, like, showing around a thing of, like, uh, what's it called? The shredded wheat with sugar on top. It's not it's sugar. You just eat the sugar. It's like, so we feed the kids bark and shred it. It keeps them really regular when they leave the element. <laughs> Firms them right up. Anyway, we'll feed them some mucilix. So uh, if you're out shopping, just grab something uh, on the list and then bring it next week for the kids. It, really simple. You know, don't, don't go out of your way and buy a million things. Just one thing on the list would be great if you're, if you're out shopping this week. And then bring it back for our Super Snack Sunday, or you can call it Snooper Snack Sunday because it just works as well. And also, uh, Element U is continuing on Wednesday nights, as Donald said, and we would invite all of you to come. The first week, I, I did it. Uh, this week was done by Paul. Next week is, so coming up is going to be me, uh, and we're going to kind of tie all that. Paul talked about together. He probably walked out of here going, there's so much information. What do I do? We want you smart. We want you smart. (laughs) Stupid summer. Yeah, it's over here. Okay, so uh, welcome to Element. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, If you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. But if you have a smartphone, you can also download an app. It is called YouVersion. Click on Live in YouVersion. Uh, You can punch in 93455-5458 as a zip code, or your GPS will look it up, and you will get all the sermon notes and verses that go along with this morning's message. Why don't you stand there? You're reading God's Word. We will get into this. Now, this is John chapter 14, verse 6, and we'll come back to this a few times throughout this message. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we would be a people who live and understand the goodness of who you are, that we would trust you for the things that you have said and the things that you have placed in your words and the concept that we are supposed to understand, even if we don't necessarily like them, but that we would trust you in the midst of all things. Have us be children who love their father. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so this is our last week in our series about the stupid summer. It could be stupid fall, almost winter because it was raining last week. How about that? Uh, just so you get a, our, our roof leaked a little bit so we knew it was raining. That, that's how we know. Uh, like some people, you know, like their, their hips hurt or their knees hurt. Our roof leaks, so that, that's how it works. And so you get a heads up, uh, we're going to start a new series next week, all the way through the beginning of the year. And this series, I've been planning on this for a while, to be able to talk about this, because I plan everything for a while, but uh, this series is about Jesus. Now you're like, you always talk about Jesus. I know, but th- this is different. I got a few GC leaders, some deacons to help me with this, and so every other week there's going to be somebody up here, and they're going to tell you what inspires them about Jesus. And that's what this whole message is going to be about. You're going to get a much wider and broader view than it was just me, so it's going to be like me than somebody else, and me than somebody else, and me than somebody else. So you get a broader and wider view of this, and Donald made a promo just for you so you can see what it's going to be, and this is the promo.
At Element, we are about one thing. We beat one drum. It may get old, but it is the only hope the world has ever had, and His name is Jesus. Jesus is King of Kings, Lord of Lords, hope of the world, the light to all mankind, Savior of rich and poor, men and women, dumb and not so dumb. Every message at Element is about Jesus. This fall, all the way through Christmas, we will be taking an even more in-depth look at the amazingness of who He is, Jesus. Because Jesus was and is a world changer. And Jesus not only spoke the truth, but He actually was the truth. Jesus brought dignity to a people who had no dignity. And Jesus was the greatest leader the world has ever known, but He was also the greatest servant. Jesus brought new understanding of not just what compassion was, but how it was to be lived out. And I'll tell you that Jesus formed the first gospel community with his disciples, and that has translated into the church today that has endured for over two thousand years. Jesus was God, and yet himself was humble. I personally would never be able to live that way. And Jesus is probably the funniest person to ever walk this planet. The entirety of how we view everything was changed by Jesus, and Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to be our comforter. But Jesus is a comforter himself. He is our wonderful counselor. Jesus has inspired people for ages, and he continues to inspire. And this series is simply part of that continuing inspiration. So join us as we talk about Jesus, because everything is about Jesus. Jesus, say it with me. Jesus, say it. Strike a poke. Jesus. I'm walking. Jesus. 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 So, so Donald says, do something at the end. And they put me in a little box. I feel like a Muppet. And I don't know what the deal is, but James, apparently, on his little clip, they got the J.J. Abrams lens flare going the entire time. It's like, am I watching Star Trek? (laughs) Anybody? No? All right. Whatever. I think the series is going to be awesome if I do say so myself, which I cannot say for today because that's all the laughter you're going to get right there. Today's actually really serious. Uh, We're going to finish this stupid summer on a topic I think deep down inside we all know is true. We just don't want to say it out loud. And sometimes we hold on to this myth because it makes us feel better. And I'm pretty sure we might even lose some people from Element after today, but apparently that's my goal to run people to other churches. And this is the myth that all dead people go to a better place. And so you're thinking, oh, is this the message about hell? No, this is another message about Jesus. But we will talk about hell in the midst of it, so so buckle up. Uh, If if you ever want to see a riot, like up close and personal, stand up in a funeral and simply tell the truth. Right? Because, you know, it'd be interesting. We have these deep-seated, unwritten rules. Uh, Sociology calls them cultural norms, where at a funeral you will praise people for fond memories. Uh, It's not a time for honesty. Even if you're somebody who's glad to be rid of the person that's that's in the casket, I mean, I don't have a problem with with being nice. I think bereaved families need comfort. I realize every life bears the image of God. I can even sit through a service where, you know, your weird uncle is described as inquisitive and eccentric, or your crazy aunt is called feisty and passionate. Uh, even the crotchety guy, you know, down the street was sensitive to those who really knew him. Anybody go? Yeah, right? You know, but, but for me, my step really too far in this where I don't participate is when the guy up front says, you know, you're wicked, Uncle 
Joe or whoever is in a better place because we don't know that and we don't make that determination. See, Jesus and the scriptures are clear. You know, the wicked don't go to a better place. There's a real hell. It is hot. Forever is a very long time. And some people think, well, yeah, I'll just go to hell and hang out with my buddies. Hell is not Satan's kingdom. It is his worst nightmare. And it's not just reserved for your wicked Uncle Joe. It's go- it goes for anybody who in their lives, no matter how sweet that they are, who never wanted to bow their lives to Jesus Christ. And this is what's really important understanding this. And... It's not something I actually say to you with happiness and joy in the midst of it, but it's reality. No matter how much we want it to be different, when you and God disagree, God is always right for good reason. It is why God is God. And and this is part of the issue when we talk about issues of of like hell, is that we don't really trust God to be God. We say things like, well, I would do it differently. Really? That means that you think you're better than God. That means that, that your goodness is better than God's goodness. Your sense of grace is better than God's sense of grace. When we come to hard concepts in the scripture, we trust God to be as good as he says that he is, even when we don't fully understand it. Because you have to know that hell is not the stick that God chases people into heaven with. In reality, hell can kind of be described as the absence of the presence of God. It's like, you want to live without him? Fine. Hell's without him forever. Hell is a present and a future reality. There's a lot of people on our planet today that are living in a state of perpetual hell. As believers, our job is to go and, and share with them the light of the kingdom of heaven and help pull them out of that hell that they are in. But it is present and it is future. And for us, it's hard to grasp. This whole idea in our culture, the exclusivity of Christ, the reality of the afterlife, the need for salvation for all people, it strikes our culture as offensive. It's this, this widespread denial of any sort of judgment or a place called hell is no more, more evident than when we deal with the subject of death. Funeral assurances, they're so deeply ingrained in us into our social custom. I mean, if you don't believe that, just, just question someone's eternal destiny. Like, not at a funeral. That'd just be like, crucify you there. But, you know, like a couple weeks later, you even say it. They still want to crucify you there. This is the issue that, that we start trying to justify. Well, well, someone's just got to be in a better place. I mean, now, if someone loves Jesus, you know, that, that's easy. Who are we to argue with that? You know, but if we find someone who maybe doesn't love Jesus and wanted nothing to do with him, or maybe their lives were totally spiritually fruitless, we will start to search for something anything to this fleeting Jesus moment or they're driving down the road in a car and a car swerved into their lane and say, Oh God, save me. I heard them pray the prayer. Oh, it's good. You know, we just, we were latching onto anything that we can find to make us make you and I feel better about someone's eternal destiny. We say, Oh, they're safely in the hands of Jesus. Isn't, isn't that so wonderful? And if you can't find that fleeting moment, we start to find other things. Well, they're a good person or they're really spiritual, anything that we can. And if, and if we can't lay a hold of something virtuous, we say, well, they had a good heart. And then that, you know, like they were a total tool, but apparently they meant well somewhere in the midst of that, you know. Oh, they got sucked into the wrong crowd, something like that. And honestly, trying to do all these mental gymnastics to get comfort, that comfort is not real because it's at odds with the scriptures. Trying to give someone peace based on lies is never good. It's kind of like we're in football season right now. So imagine a quarterback's out there, and they, and they sack him, and he breaks his leg. And the doctor runs out. He's like, oh, yeah, you'll play next week. It might make him feel good as they drag him off the field, but he's not going to play next week. That truth does that guy no good. That lie does him no good. Got to understand, eternal destiny is not determined why every, where everyone says somebody went or hopes they went. Everything is in God's hands. And we are people who say, we like heaven. We don't like the idea of hell simply because we don't trust God. 
you know, if there is a concept and there is a place called hell, we still trust God in the midst of that, that he is as good as he says that he is. We may not understand all the nuances of it, what it's really like. You know, are there worms? Is it really a flaming fire? Am I burnt? What it was? We don't know. Our whole point is not to even push people towards heaven. It's to point out Jesus and who Jesus is. And this sometimes sounds really harsh to people. And don't blame me. Blame Jesus. That's who we're talking about. He's the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Open your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 7. Jesus never dances around subjects like this. He's just fully open and honest. He is a rabbi. He taught Jewish thought. And he, as God, knows the things that he has created. And so you've got to look at and understand the things that he says and those implications that it means for you and I as people who believe in him. So Matthew seven thirteen and 14, Jesus says this. He says, You enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now, there's a lot of biblical scholars that come along today, and they're saying, well, you know, Jesus' words didn't mean what we think they mean. You know, Jesus was very, very cultural in that. He was trying to just talk to people of his day, and, and these things don't really fit. Well, that that's, doesn't actually fit with Jesus at all. If you understand Jesus in his context, Jesus is anything but accommodating. Jesus is an equal opportunity offender. Okay? He takes on everybody's sacred cows. In John chapter 4, he starts a conversation with a woman who is very promiscuous at a well, and he essentially tells her, you need to knock it off. He grabs a traitor, a tax collector named Matthew. He redeems him. He makes Matthew part of his inner circle, which made people very angry at him. But how can you love that tax collector? Kind of like how we all feel, right? How can you love that tax collector? Jesus repeatedly violates the Sabbath traditions, though not the Sabbath, I would say, itself. Jesus allows a prostitute to publicly wash his feet. None of those things are accommodation. And for us to come along and say, well, maybe he was just playing on the people's fears of the day when it came to hell. That doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense with who Jesus was. Jesus doesn't downplay hell. Jesus talks about hell as much as any other subject except the kingdom of God. Jesus then says he is the only way to the Father. Matthew 10, 28, Matthew 23, 15, John 14, 6, Acts 4, 12. And so this idea that all dead people go to a better place, it comes out of another myth. And this myth is different than all the ones we've looked at because this myth is something that Christians and non-Christians both hold to. And it's this belief that all roads eventually lead to the same place. Some people think it's the afterlife. Some people think it's just nothing, but it all kind of goes to the same place. Now, Leo Tolstoy, after he became a Christian, my paraphrase, he essentially says, if I'm going to die and this life is all that there is, then life means nothing. You see, most of us believe there's something more. It's like, how do I get there? How do I get that thing? It's all about us. I want that thing. How do I get that thing? What you have to understand is, first, there must be a God and something after us, or nothing you do ever makes any difference if this life is all that there is. If you don't believe in God or Jesus, heaven, hell, any of that stuff, and you decide to live a compassionate life, why? Why? If there's nothing that comes after you. Now, if you, maybe you live a compassionate life and you have a brother and your brother lives like hell. You know, they rape and murder and pillage and they have a life of violence and oppression. If when you die and you just rot, it is meaningless to the oceans of eternity that come before and after you. If there is nothing else, the sun goes supernova one day and wipes out the planet Earth. What is the point of living your life in any way except being completely selfish if there is no God and nothing comes after you? Timothy Keller says this. He says, the Titanic hits the glacier, and I know a glacier is on land, so it's got to be an iceberg, so he's a good guy anyway. Titanic hits the glacier. It's going down. If there's nothing else, does it really matter if you go down hugging or mugging? It doesn't matter. 
Say, you're going down in five. Give me your wallet. What are you going to be like? Okay, you know, we're all going to die anyway. What, what, what does it matter? Only with the idea of the continuation of life that, that do our deeds and our loves and our hopes have any merit. So this idea that all roads lead to the same place becomes very, very popular. Most biblically literate Christians know that such thinking doesn't actually fit in terms with the scriptures. But when it comes to the eternal destiny of people that we love and people that we like, a large number of us start to try to create our own theology to believe what we want to believe because we don't really, again, trust God to be as good as he says as he is. And this really helps explain why no one ever objects when a preacher assures everybody the dead guy, whoever he is, whatever he has done, is now in a better place. I mean, seriously, that great theologian Willie Nielsen could probably preach most funerals today when he says, I believe that all roads lead to the same place. We're taking different paths to get there, but we all end up in the same place. Way to go, Willie. Bam, there you are. You know, every major world religion claims to be unique in some ways. But the extraordinary claims of Christianity make it different. These claims will either make Christianity ridiculous and unbelievable, or it makes it something you have to come to terms with. Now, C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist who became a Christian, we talked about him last week a little bit, he says this, Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. I'll explain what that kind of means. With modern science today, almost everybody agrees that Jesus was a real person. Only people who have an axe to grind say that he wasn't. Uh, The issue is not about Jesus' existence, about what did Jesus claim when he walked this planet. And in the scriptures, when you read, Jesus claimed to be God. John 14, 5 through 9. He says, to see him is to see the Father. Jesus goes about forgiving sins, all of which the Jews knew that only God could do. Jesus receives worship from his disciples. Jesus performed miracles. Now, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, and others, they all accept Jesus was a good guy. He's a wise prophet. He died at the hands of his enemies. But Christians take that a step farther because we believe Jesus' words, that he was God. He was good and wise, but he was fully divine and fully human. And the most profound implication for this is in regard to salvation. Salvation in Christianity is completely unique. It doesn't mean if you're saved, you get to walk around arrogantly be like, oh, look, I'm saved. You're not saved. That's not what Christianity does. Christianity always comes at salvation from a point of humbleness that our God deemed to save us. And in, in the simplest sense, other religions are like this. Do these things and live this way in order to earn your way to God. That is, that's Islam. That's Hinduism. That's Buddhism. That's, that's modern-day Mormonism. That's Jehovah's Witnesses. It's, it's all that. But Christianity says what needs to happen in order for you to know God and receive salvation has already been done by Jesus. Christianity is not even so much advice on how to live. It is joyful news about how Jesus lived and died to earn the way to God for you. Christianity is that says that Jesus has done everything necessary for people to have a relationship with God that leads to peace now and for the future. So Christians believe in salvation from a position of gratitude, not a position of obligation or a fear of hell or even hope of heaven, because it is all about Jesus. It's not about, oh, I'm going to become a Christian so I can go to heaven. That's, if, if that's what it is, you're totally missing the point of Christianity. The point of Christianity is Jesus' relationship with God. It is the purest form of motivation because there is no personal gain. The reward has already been given, which frees the receiver up to do and give out of a truly selfless gratitude. The personal claims of Jesus and the implications of his life and death and resurrection draw a distinct contrast to every other religion on this planet. The gospel, this is why it is good news. Everything has been done. No other religion makes this kind of upfront gospel promise. Nobody would would have the guts to do that except God himself. Open your Bibles to James chapter 1. And this is the point when you believe and trust the gospel. We trust Christ with our lives. 
that belief and that hope and that trust begins to be lived out in what we actually do. James chapter 1, verse 22 says this, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Then he goes on to chapter 2, verse 14. Look at that. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, you are not saved by any other work than Christ's work on the cross for you. Jesus died and rose for you. But what they say throughout the scriptures and what he's talking about is that if Jesus is the king and you're living in his kingdom, your life is eventually going to start to look more like someone who actually lives in his kingdom. It just naturally gets played out that way. I was talking to somebody about this after second service this morning. They're asking me all these questions. And I said, it doesn't mean that you believe in Jesus and tomorrow everything changes and you're like, saint, got a halo on top of your head. I said, it's, it's this, you know, it, it can be this slow burn, this slow morph, but eventually things simply change because you do love Jesus. Because you do follow him, things begin to look different. See, and so many people who call themselves Christians believe so many things that are contrary to what the scriptures teach. See, in John 14, 6, Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What that is, that is a statement of exclusivity. That's what it is. He is the king, and we as his people in his kingdom worship him. That means we actually follow him. We believe the words that he says. We do the things that he calls us to do, not out of a sense of obligation, but out of a sense of gratitude because of the upfront gospel promise given to us. And so why do so many people call themselves Christians, believe so many things that are contrary to just what the scriptures teach? Honestly, I think sometimes we just hear and believe what we want to hear and believe. In many cases, it doesn't matter what is proclaimed from a pulpit or uh, maybe a church's stance on something or even what you read in the scriptures. You know, we believe what we want to believe. We hear what we want to hear. And the fact is, the more that our culture comes to this idea of a global village, the more it becomes culturally diverse, all of us are always going to want to try and include everybody in the spiritual family member that we're a part of, even when they're unwilling to follow our Father as the Father, that Jesus is is God of this kingdom, and they refuse to follow Jesus. Well, how can you be in that kingdom, in the system of that kingdom, if you're not willing to follow the king of that kingdom? And I have conversations with people like this all the time. Well, if God is so loving, why doesn't he just bring everybody into his heavenly home? Now, we've talked about this on multiple occasions before. I won't beat you over the head with this, but uh, I would recommend you read John Piper's amazing book, Desiring God. It's excellent. Uh, And this is the idea, that God is committed to his own glory before anything else. It is God's love for his glory that brings about his love for us. God is the most God-centered being in the universe. God has no other gods before himself, not you and not me. And so out of God's glory comes his love and his justice and his mercy and his grace. In Isaiah 42, verse 8, he says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. In reference to God refining and then saving his people, Isaiah 48, 11, God says, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my glory, or how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God says, this is why I say, this is why I do it. It's for my glory. And so people say, well, you know, then God just let everybody into his home. I don't understand why we think that. Would you let everybody into your home? There are people in this world that hate you, right? They want to see you dead. You're going to invite them into your house? No, you wouldn't do that. I mean, seriously, why does God get, you know, someone comes into your house, they just, they're going to smack your spouse and your kids around. You mean, they need it. Look, well, they defecate on your carpet. They say, take all of your stuff and like, I want to sell their stuff on eBay. And they start selling all of your stuff on eBay because they think it's all about them. Oh, it's about me. I'll be in your house. I'll take your stuff because it's all about me. It's, it's that kind of idea. You know what you would do if that person was in your house? You would bury them. Well, 
Maybe not bury, maybe hit him with a shovel. Okay, not bury them. But you know, I don't know. You, you do something because you wouldn't want them in your house. So I have this conversation with people all the time that comes down to this issue. People who regularly attend our services. They, they, they take notes. They claim to get a lot out of messages. I even got this guy. Uh, he usually, you know, has like his top ten and he'll go, oh yeah, that was like number five out of your top ten. He's always like, he's rating every message I give. So I'm like, it's, it's kind of weird. Don't do that. It's kind of annoying. Anyway, uh, <laughs> this is the last service. So he was there. I told him. Anyway, uh, and, I, like, sometimes when we talk through things, like when we, we hit, like, election or, or things like that, and people go, I didn't know you believed that. It's because people just stop listening. I mean, you can take it as an indictment of our teaching, right? But I don't think so. I go over what I say to you in, every week in detail. I'm not trying to sound smug, but, but I don't think it's how Eric and Jonathan or James or I teach. I think the problem comes down to how people listen. Because when we are presented with truths that we just don't like, we usually tune it out. So the question becomes, why is this so important then? You know, why not leave an uncomfortable topic like the reality of a hell and trusting? And why don't you leave that for your gospel class or maybe for an element you on, on a Wednesday night? You know, why, why do it at the end of the stupid summer? Because I think it's important to do it here before we move on. You know, all, this whole concept of heaven and hell, it is politically incorrect. You know, it is a messy subject. But we must talk about it because the reason is simple. Because the cross and salvation are central to the gospel. And once you lose any real concept of what takes place in an afterlife, the natural consequence is more than just putting us at odds with Scripture. It eventually devalues the cross. It redefines salvation. And what it will do is turn all of our obedience into just like an extra credit spiritual add-on. And that's not what it is. Just like all the other myths that we look at throughout this series and all these urban legends, the belief that dead people go to a better place or all dead people go to a better place is an error of fact. But it also changes how we live. It has harmful spiritual results. In this case, not only for those who buy into it, but for you and I, because when we don't tell people because nobody starts to hear about Jesus anymore. One of the worst side effects this myth does is it just kills evangelism. It kills any sense of urgency. And that, again, hurts us as individuals because we stop doing what Jesus actually called us to go and do, and it hurts those who are supposed to tell about him. So I'm going to give you four ways this myth undercuts evangelism. And the first one is what I just said. It is urgency. It is urgency. Now, in the early church, believers felt so passionate about the need to evangelize those around them that they were willing to die trying. Die trying. Too many of us do things exactly the opposite of that. Evangelism is no longer you know, worth dying for. It's hardly worth stressing any relationship over. I mean, the biggest roadblock today to sharing our faith is not, oh, I might lose my job or my family or, or my life. You know, it's fear of embarrassment. Oh, I might stress this relationship. Oh, what if they don't like what I say? So we all just stay quiet. We don't want to look dumb. We don't want to be rejected. You know, a recent study showed that up to 50% of churches in America today fail to win one convert to Christ per year. 50% one convert. That's really hard to square with Jesus' command to go into all the world and make disciples. But on the other hand, it makes perfect sense if we all believe that everyone's just saved. Secondly, it leads to a position of arrogance. Of arrogance. If you hold a position that all dead people go to a better place, it makes the very idea of evangelism seem arrogant. And it's not. It is, it is a great blessing that God has allowed us to partner with Him to tell people about His grace and His goodness. It is a blessing that we receive. But if all paths work, you know, why make any path better than the other? It leads to a switch in priorities as well. It relegates the need of salvation to the back of the line. And once you decide that following Christ is merely the best path, not the only path, it's not long until our neighbors and our community and the world all have more pressing needs than coming to know Jesus. 
If eternity is already taken care of for everybody, why focus our limited time and our energy and money on trying to convert people? Instead, genuine compassion would call for dealing with the immediate, immense, and pressing needs of people around us, the stuff of the here and now. And don't get me wrong, because I'm not saying the here and now is not important. It is very important. If you're around element for any length of time, we do lots of things all over the world to alleviate suffering around this planet. I believe that caring for the poor is a sign of the kingdom and a telling trait of righteousness, justice, mercy, humility. They are required of all of us. But Jesus says this in Mark 8, 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? See, when conversion becomes unnecessary, you know, it's just an opportunity to share a, a better way rather than the only way, well, then digging wells and eradicating disease and protecting the environment all take precedence. And in many cases, it's not long until compassion and liberation are no longer viewed as the other side of the evangelism coin. It's actually the only side of the coin that then matters. But what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? It is both. We bring help and relief, but we always speak about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And lastly, it undercuts obedience. Obedience. Because it's not only evangelistic zeal and fervor that this myth kills. It undercuts all of our obedience. I mean, if it's just a, like a nod to God or a car is coming at me, ah, God save me, and, that, and that, that's all it takes, well, everything just becomes extra credit add-on. Now, again, you don't have to earn your salvation. Don't mistake me in that. It can't be done. God doesn't grade on a curve. We can never do enough to pay for the debt of our sins. Otherwise, again, there'd be no reason for Jesus to die on a cross. But at the same time, the presumption that you and I can live like hell and still be confident of ending up in the presence of God forever is an idea that Jesus and the people and the authors of the New Testament never taught. I mean, Jesus talks about a rich young ruler in the scriptures. This rich young ruler, he's a guy, he'd be a deacon or elder in most churches today. Okay, the, guy, the guy gave a lot, he volunteered, he was very moral. And so he comes to Jesus, I want to follow you. And so Jesus looks at him in Mark 10, 21, it says Jesus loved him. And said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Now, when this young guy is unwilling to do that, Jesus doesn't go, that's okay, I'll see you in eternity. Doesn't, you know what he does? He turns around and he tells the story illustrating how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. That's the story that he tells. Now, again, don't mistake me, because the Bible is also full of stories of people who knew God and did some totally hellish things. You can find a lot of comfort there, because a lot of us have lived like that in our lives. You know, we, we love Jesus, and then we just go off the rails, and we're just sitting over here in the weeds somewhere going, oh, Jesus, please take me back. You know, take me over there. And that's why we all love the story of the prodigal son, because at some point we all end up like the prodigal son. You know, godly people can fall into sin, either suddenly or on a slow path trajectory that goes over there. And without a doubt, we all struggle. Even the writers of Scripture struggle. But simply living all the time in a land of disobedience and staying there and then on top of that defending it as no big deal, according to the scriptures, that's a completely different matter. That's not as someone who, who actually follows Christ. That's not something they do. 1 John 2, 4 says, Forever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments as a liar, and the truth is not in him. Ouch. That's pretty harsh. I mean, you don't want to really preach that at a funeral. Be like, who invited that guy? You know, let's get rid of him, you know. Yet it's hardly an obscure scripture reference. It's not one of those tough passages you can find other passages and say, oh, what he really meant was he meant this. You know, in 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5, the Apostle Paul says essentially the same thing. He warns us against being deceived. And that's Paul's word. It's not, it's not my word. He said, you're deceived into believing that those who persist in a willful pattern of disobedience will enter the kingdom of heaven. So you've got to understand that to Paul, the kingdom of heaven is a present and a future reality. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, they're interchangeable words. 
and its present and its future. It's living underneath the rulership and the kingship of Jesus. And that goes on into all of eternity. Just like hell is a present and future reality, so is the kingdom of God. And these warnings that Paul says kind of make me think the early church, at least that in Corinth and Galatia, were a lot like us today. I mean, otherwise, why the warning? I mean, it's not a new thing to assume that people are part of the kingdom without ever following the king, apparently. You know, which makes me wonder if it's politically incorrect to talk about hell then as it is today as well. Now, I think it would be a lot easier to never, you know, talk about this myth, you know, just to save it for a gospel class or save it for an LMU or something like that. But you have to understand that Jesus reminds us in John 8, 31 and 32, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That is always true. The truth is always true, even inconvenient truths, which is why we talk about it. Because, again, in the end, the issue is not heaven or hell. The issue is Jesus. Do you really trust God? If he comes up with a really hard concept for you and I to believe, do you think that that God didn't think through what that was and what it was going to be? Do you think that God actually isn't trustworthy? No, he is totally trustworthy, which is why every single week, We talk to you guys about Jesus because we want to call you to be those who believe in the grace and the goodness of Jesus Christ. To live as he gives us strength to live. To honor him by glorifying him in all things. Because if your life is surrendered to Christ and his truth, even that inconvenient, unpopular truth of the afterlife, what happens is the cross and salvation are returned to the rightful place at the center of the gospel. Evangelism becomes an important priority. And we don't do it out of arrogance. Because, again, we realize that we are saved by the grace of God. It's not because we are so good that God's like, oh, I just got to save that guy. He's wonderful. That, that is, God never says that about any of us. God comes and saves us simply because he is good and he is trustworthy and he is wonderful. And then obedience on the backside of that becomes the defining mark of what it means to really love God back. We actually follow him as our king in his kingdom. And our prayer at Element is for all people we'd set aside all of our myths and that we would love Jesus because he has first loved us. Not out of fear, but out of this whole idea of hope that our God has come and our God has saved us because he is that good. Because he is that good. And when we run into concepts that we don't understand or we struggle against, it's still okay to struggle with those things and what that all looks like. The point in the backside is do you trust Jesus to actually be as good as he is, even when he talks about the reality of hell? Do you trust him on the backside? I'd be like, man, but I trust him to be good. Well, I do it differently. Well, you don't trust him to be as good as he is. You must trust him to be as good as he is. And this is why we come to communion every week. It reminds us that our God is faithful and he is as good as he says that he is. That's why you take that cracker and you break it like his body is broken for us. That's why you dip it in the wine of the grape juice. Because it reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and I. Because not only does he recognize that we have a sin problem, he comes and he takes care of it. And he calls into his kingdom, and we as his followers are to be those who surrender our lives fully to him and trust him in all things. And and believe me, I I think that a way that a lot of people talk about hell today is probably misunderstood, too. Because I haven't been there. (laughs) I don't know if you have, but we haven't been there. How How do we explain what it is? But Jesus clearly talks about it. So, you know, whatever it is, we still trust him in the midst of it. Not understanding fully what it is, but trusting that he is a good God who saves people from a life and eternity without him. The band's going to come up. And as they do, uh, we're going to sing some songs. Uh, we invite you guys to take communion. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back, and maybe you're in a place today where it's like, man, I, I don't know about that, and you wonder we want to pray about it. Well, they'd love to pray with you about it. I mean, maybe you struggle with some questions about it. Uh, I had talked to people after last service. 
which is fine. And if I can't get to you and you have some questions, well, uh, write them down on one of the comment cards, and me or one of the elders are going to hold you this week, and we can hopefully answer some of your questions and help you out there as well uh, with that. Uh, we give because God has given so much to us, so we have offering boxes inside the wall in the back. Uh, giving is not out of fear of hell. I better give some money or God's going to make me rot in hell. That's not what giving is like. You know, giving is it's a response to what God has done. God has given so much to us, and so we simply give because our God is that good. Uh, there's some food and stuff in the back. We invite you guys to get together with each other. Maybe you talk through some of these really hard issues. You know, and you say, you know, what do you think about this or about that? And you can actually kind of start to hammer those things out a little bit. Because it is important to talk about things that especially are really, really hard. And in the end, you must come down to the place where no matter what you decide, you trust Jesus. Because he is that good. And I think you're really going to enjoy the next series as we go through it. Because, I mean, Jesus is simply amazing. I try and, like, you know, slam you over the head today and then make you feel really good for, like, two months, you know. <laughs> See how that works. Um, Jesus is good. He is good. And so trust him in all things, even with the reality of a place called hell. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that we would be a people who simply surrender and trust your amazing grace to us. Uh, That we would be those who don't shirk away from the things that you clearly talk about in Scripture, but on the other side, actually really trust you and the things that you've talked about in the Scriptures. Father, I, I, I know that we all have people in our lives who have hurt us at some point and some place. And I ask that our prayer would be for their hope of walking with you and walking in the kingdom of God. And that our prayer for them wouldn't be you know, that they spend eternity separated from you. That as you, as you call your people to give and serve and, and honor you in all things, part of that is expressing your great love for the people that you have made. And so today, have us trust you, especially in the things that we don't understand, and to simply live lives of obedience that you've called us to, sharing the greatness of your gospel, the good news of who you are and what you have done, trusting you for all things. And when we say all things, Jesus, we mean all things things. Renew the mind of your people today so we walk out into this world with a great sense of urgency that we want all people to know you and love you and that we could all then come together and spend eternity in your presence because you are great and we love you because you have first loved us. Amen.